I mentioned last week on the show about giving the Net Awards judges a big bag of cash if they voted for Unfinished Business. Uh-huh. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> what, what happened? No, no, it was a joke, of course. It was, it was a joke. Yeah. Cause actually the judging's over. For the, for the, for the main for thing? The awards, I didn't realize, I, I hadn't realized when I made the offer about the big bag of cash that actually the judging had finished. No. Oh. Well, that wasted me a fortune, didn't it? The winners have been chosen. Already. Yes. We, see, we didn't, we didn't get shortlisted. Hammer, I mean, didn't get shortlisted. Was it in a category? <laughs> yeah. It was in, it was an app of the year. Oh, Alongside I voted for it then. Sketch, Sublime Text, you know, Medium, 53 Paper, and our friends at Mixture as well. That was a good lineup. That's a bloody good lineup. I can't remember who else was in the, the long list, <clears throat> other than, of course, Hammer for Mac. I wish that they would keep all of the pages up oh, so that yeah, you could see yeah. who was there and nominated at the beginning. Maybe they'll do that when it's all over. Yeah, they must do. So this is a bit of an early start. I'm stretching. It's five past nine in the morning on a Friday. It is good Friday, though. It's Easter Friday. It's looking like a great Friday by the looks of things. This was a proper program. We'd be wishing all of our listeners a very happy Easter holidays. <laughs> but won't this this will go out on Monday. Uh, yeah, I might put it out on Sunday, depending on depending on what I'm doing, depending on how I can uh, how quickly I can get around to edit it. We hope everybody's had a, a nice Easter break. But it's not too much of a problem because I've been getting up and going swimming every morning. You've been tweeting about your swimming. Well, I can't help it. I mean, it'll get boring in the end. The tweeting, but not the swimming. You swim for an hour every morning. I have been. Yeah, I get so bored after about minute eight of swimming, going back and forth in the water with nothing, nothing to, to you know keep me busy, occupied, I just get bored. My mind sort of goes blank and I, I can't do it for very long. How do you, how do you stay focused? Well, you're water? cleverer than me. You see, you, you're cleverer than me, so you can multitask in that big brain of yours. Me, I just have to concentrate on counting how many lengths I'm doing. So you give yourself something to do with counting. Yes, that's all, and that's all I can. I might think about some other things, but generally speaking, I'm just trying to stay afloat and count. <laughs> Those two things alone are enough for me to contend with. I see the, the the struggle of swimming is over for me, and therefore I can't do it for very long. <laughs> also, counting, counting. I, I don't do any counting. I need to mix it up because I normally do backstroke. Backstroke's my thing, and it always was. When, when I used to swim years and years ago, mm-hmm. I always used to prefer backstroke. Is that because you can breathe at any point? Yes. Yeah. And I haven't quite got used to the whole crawl thing again. Breathing in the stream. Yet. Which I will. Strokes and breathing on the third and the, the, the fifth or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, the third I think is too often. Fifth is okay. I can do the fifth, mm. but you know, you get halfway down the pool and you kind of have a minor panic because you don't quite catch your breath or maybe you catch a bit of water or something mm. and then it all mm. goes to pot. So <laughs> breathing, it's, it's difficult. This is all part of my Boag World weight loss challenge. Really? That's what this is all in aid of. I just saw it. I just started seeing tweets in the morning coming up about how far you'd swum. No, and I need to, I need to get fit and lose weight anyway. And then Paul and I decided that we would challenge each other because <laughs> it would give us a bit of motivation. But I just weighed myself this morning. <laughs> and I've done four, I've done, I swam four miles this week. I've had less than 2000 calories a day. I've been having minimal carbs. You know, I've not been eating bread. I've not yeah. been eating potatoes. Yeah. And I've lost Bugger all. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a scientific explanation for this. Yeah, people keep saying, yeah, well, it could be because you've been exercising and you put on muscle, Andrew, but uh, I don't care. <laughs> Someone's written a book novel. about exactly what's happening to you right now to make you not lose any weight. There's a book. I just think that I need to do more exercise, so I'm going to do that. Yeah, that is, I mean, it, maybe it is the muscle. Someone told me that muscles are four times heavier than the equivalent volume of fat. And I have felt stiff. You know, my shoulders have been stiff this week. So I think that I have actually, you know, I've done some exercise. That's all the, that's all the muscle you're putting on. You're bulking. You're I'm gonna, gonna, you're gonna... <laughs> bulking. I bulked a long time ago is what I did. <laughs> but it's good. I get there. I get, I usually get there. It's the pool's open between seven and nine mm-hmm. in the morning. They mm-hmm. call it fresh start, <laughs> which I think it must be for the old folks that go. They must give it a name. Did you get a letter in the post telling you? That, <laughs> no. that the pool is now open earlier for the senior members? No, no, I did not. You b- um, <laughs> I did get a very nice letter from Saga Holidays yesterday. 
I get about three calls a week now, and generally, whoever it, whoever it was that signed me up to all of these things must have put in the office phone number because they don't know. Nobody knows my actual house phone number, apart from you know Sue's mum and Alex. That's about it. Right. Nobody, nobody ever calls. The phone rings in the office and still go, look, look, I'm very sorry, but he really isn't interested. Please take him off the list. <laughs> Somebody thought this was very funny. Um, yeah, but it's good. You should just say, I'm sorry, you know, and, and Andrew is no longer with us. That'll get you <laughs> off the list for sure. <laughs> so I get up to the fresh start mm-hmm. and it's open between seven and nine and I generally get there at about sort of seven forty-five ish mm-hmm. because if you get there really early, you get the mature people. Your contemporaries. No, no the mature people who swim before they go to work. So they're going to come in and they're going to like burn 60 lengths or something. And then they're going to get out there and go to work, which is great. Right. But it makes it a little bit busy in the lanes because the way they've broken it down is they've in our pool. You've got like a fast lane, which mm-hmm. is where people just plow and do lens. Mm-hmm. You've got the medium lane, which is where people that can do fast breaststroke go. And then you can got the rest of the pool, which is basically where old women poodle up and down. <laughs> and then and he's then, doing his backstroke. <laughs> and stand and stand at the end. No, you see, I go in the fast lane. Oh, you do, but when it's empty. No, I can go quite fast. The problem is the backstroke because I can go in a straight line. But if there's old women dithering about, <laughs> I don't want to knock one on the head. You don't see them. <laughs> so you don't see them coming. They're, you need. They're like, they're like icebergs. You need those like, prismatic glasses. They're like grey icebergs. You know that people use to read while they're uh, lying in bed or watch TV while they're lying down with the little mirrors? Yes. You need to. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. Like a little periscope attached to your face. I need some little flip-up mirrors on my goggles. Yep. That would work. That's a million-dollar invention just waiting to be invented. Wow, that's such a cool idea. Well, so that's what... That's sonar. <laughs> just, yeah, just turn around and go ping every once in a while into the water. What I've noticed is that there's people that go at a certain time of day, they get very territorial about the lanes. So here's me, because I've been going for, what, Four weeks, five, mm-hmm. four, three or four weeks, something mm-hmm. like that. So I'm, I'm only now becoming kind of accepted or tolerated. Right. But I'm not, I'm not quite welcome in the lane yet. You get the, 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 the lane hoggers. Is as it I a, call them. is there a system to this? Is, is it something dead man's, you know, dead man's nose plugs or how do you get in? How do you, do you have to know someone who is? If your father was, you know, in the fast lane, can you get to the fast lane? <laughs> if you can do the funny shake. Um, do you roll no, up I, the bottom of your swimming trunks? I think that you just have to go and, and, and get in and you have to, it's a bit like gorillas in the, you know, I'm the young silverback. Oh. Trying my luck against the, uh, the mature. So you stand on the, the diving platform and, and hammer your chest before leaping. Directly into the fast lane. That's what you've, I think you've got to own it. I'm the youngest one there though. I'm the youngest and the coolest and the most attractive one there, to be honest, because most of them are over 60, which is, you know. Oh, uh. And I'm a few years off that. Oh, oh, okay. I was just thinking what you act because you were reversing the whole time. What you need is one of those, um, those sirens on the back. You know how they have on the back of the truck? They used to beep. And now Tom Scott did an interesting video on why they don't beep, but now they go, they go, you know, this, this swimmer is reversing. That would get annoying really quickly. It's underwater. Only the people you, swimming would hear it. You can get, because I know this now, because now I'm getting into it, I've been on the shopping sites. So I bought some Speedos. <laughs> I bought some Speedos this week. No, it's in my mind, and yeah. it's in your mind, and it's in the minds of all of our listeners. Now. I didn't buy Bogey Smugglers. Oh, that's, that's what a Speedos are. Well, they're made by a Speedo. But they oh, are longer. They, I mean, they're still tight fitting. I don't want drag. More parrot muggling. Because <laughs> my existing trunks, not that the listeners really need to know this, but my existing trunks are a little baggy. They're fine for kind of, you know, just playing volleyball on the beach, I suppose. Mm. Not that I've ever done that. Casual swimming, bathing. Exactly. Having a quick dunk in the holiday pool. But they're no good. There's a bit of drag. You're going to have to shave your beard, Andy. You know. I, I did have a trim because I was experiencing some drag. Did you measure your before and after? No, because that's the sort of thing that you would do. Yeah, if your numbers go up, you're having more fun. I don't do numbers. Your numbers would have to go down. I don't do data. We'll talk about this later. Oh, you have told me exactly how many calories uh, you've eaten every day for the past week. 
Animal. Well, the, the, okay, so I am counting those. And look, here's a, here's a graph on the NHS of exactly where you are. This is all old, old data. You've got to get that stopwatch. You can buy, speaking of stopwatches, though, you can buy fitness bands for swimming. Because mm-hmm. I, I've already got a Nike fuel band. There's a company in Bath, actually, here that, that does them, and I forget what they're called. Speedo make one. Oh, do they? It's mm. not them. Yeah, that, that's probably the one you want. I've promised myself that when I can do a mile in 40 minutes, then I'm buying one of these swimming fitness trackers. But how will you know you've done a mile in 40 minutes if you don't have one of these fitness trackers? Well, I'm just looking at the clock. I'm kind of guessing. Your numbers are all going unverified. Someone's, you know, how do you know that clock is accurate? It's a vague goal, right? Fitness is a science. I never really thought about it before, but the fuel band and what are the other ones? Fitbits or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're not waterproof. So they're okay for counting your steps, but they're not any good for you know, doing a swim. So I bought one of those. No, no, I haven't bought one of those. I'm going to buy one of those. And what do you, what do you hope to find out from, from the information that, cause I had a Fitbit <clears throat> for quite a while and it was really fun at first. You know, you, you, you see what time you do all your walking, you go out one night and you see all these steps that are unaccounted for. But I think what happened was uh, you had to charge it once a week and I would always forget to charge it and it would die. And you had to take it off. It was on, it was, it went on my sort of belt loop, you know, in that little fifth pocket. So it was quite accurate. I just got, you know, I just wasn't, wasn't really interested in all my steps. The new ones seem to do a, a much better job, but that kind of tracking your everyday activity sort of gets boring after a while, I found. Well, now you mention it, I've just taken my fuel band off and realized that it actually doesn't have any charge in it. Neither has it had for about the last week. So <laughs> that was a waste of time. Decoratively. That was, it's not even an attractive looking thing. It just looks like an Asbo band. <laughs> Should wear it on my ankle. Medical alert. This, this person is allergic to not running. Now, see, now you've got a big gap in your, um, in your statistics. All of your numbers and predictions will now be way off. And your graph is going to have this big dead zone. And are you going to put that thing back on? Yeah, I'll just need to charge it up. Silly sod. Did you see that? Rainmaker, DC Rainmaker's review of that new Galaxy Gear Fit that I sent you the other day. Oh, they panned it. They did pan it. God, what a failure. Samsung has failed consistently with its last, like, five products. Didn't they make a watch? Uh, well, yes, the Galaxy Gear. Did you see the ads for that watch? I did. See, the, the one ga- with the skiing yeah, guy taking one. stalker photos of the, the blonde girl? God, that did not sell me a watch. I think... That we think that these advertisements are absurd because they're not for us. They're not for us at all. They're for, are they for Koreans. Exactly. The Koreans and, and people in, in Asia. And I think the cultural fit is very slightly different. So while these ads are in, in English, <clears throat> they sort of seem to portray a situation that is, that sells you a watch in Korea. That here, I just think that's not the watch I want. That is, I don't want to take a photo of this girl skiing with my watch and then send it to her by, by speaking to it. I don't, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me. You couldn't identify with the skiing guy. I'm not the target market. I must not be the target market. And the same must be true for this. <laughs> so Samsung, I think they are, I think they're just stalling, waiting for Apple to bring out their next product so they can copy it. That was John Gruber's take, because I think his comment on the link to that review was, you know, this is what happens when Samsung don't have Apple to copy <laughs> or a market leader to copy. And which Apple was, you know, seem like they're getting into this with health book and, you know. Well, it's going to be interesting. Do you wear a watch anyway, normally? I do. I've recently bought a Mondane, which I've wanted for some time. You may recognize it as the official clock of the Swiss railways. Oh, I know. And up till recently featured on Apple's iOS operating system. Yeah, it's a lovely watch. I'm really, really pleased with it. It's it's a smart watch instead of a smart watch. Oh, that's very good. good. Justified, isn't it? That's very good. Because like most watches, I mean, I know that you get good ones. And I, you know, when I was going to Geneva and I was walking past watch shops in the middle of Geneva. There's only watch shops and knives. It's mainly watches and knives, yeah. Mm. Not an awful lot of other things. And you can tell that... A shop is really expensive when they take the watches out of the window at night. Because <laughs> most of the shops leave the ones that cost, you know, a thousand dollars. They leave them in the window. Yeah. So you know the ones that are, are, are pricey. Mm-hmm. But they all just, they look so massive. I mean, They're so big. They're so big. Watches have gotten so big. 
They're like sundials, aren't they? Men's watches. I mean, I know that it's probably good for some people, but I don't want a watch that tells me my altitude. No, it's just, it's just the fashion. It's just the fashion of the watch now is to be an enormous status symbol. So I don't know whether or not a, I mean, I've been wearing this stupid fuel band thing since November, more or less. Do you use it off. to tell the time? I, I have used it to tell the time occasionally, mm. yeah. Mm. Without getting my phone out of my pocket. But I, no, loved, that, I, I have just loved having a watch again. Because I had a pebble. Did you ever see the pebble? No, I, I, I saw one. I didn't see yours. I bought it for the sole reason that it has a big screen that just says, you know, 4.15. And it just has a big 4 and a big 15, and I quite like that. And the idea was that you could customize the, the way that your, your, your watch looked. So you could just have the time in great big letters. It was quite cool. Of course, it does all this other stuff like controls your music. And I can pause something that's on the television with it. It's it's pretty useful. You have to charge these things. Any smartwatch, any smart anything, you have to take off your wrist and charge it. I think I just end up resenting five different cables on my bedside table. I reckon that that's going to be the problem that Apple will likely try to solve. Uh. Because uh, that's why they haven't done it yet, you think? Maybe, maybe. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's about battery technology, but it's also about maybe charging technology. Because that's one of the things with the review of this, what was it, Galaxy Gear Fit? Yeah. Was he have to bloody well charge it up? And it came with some, I come up with some stupid USB cable rather than being able to stick it, plug it straight into your computer. <sighs> that's going to be the thing. It needs to be some kind of, what do they call it, kinetic charging or something that where you don't have to charge it up. Yeah, every day. Yeah, kinetic. Kinetic would be that'd be good. They had those watches that would wind themselves up. I mean, obviously, there's there's enough power to kind of make the mechanism go round, but maybe not enough power to drive a screen. That's the. I think that's the challenge. I think it's the screens. The screens are so battery hungry. It's tricky. I mean, short of doing wireless power and you know uh, just having a little thing underneath your bedside table that charges everything that's on top of it, which I think is the future. Um, it's, until that happens, it's really just going to be proprietary waterproof charging cables. <laughs> I'm just looking at this Speedo fitness tracker, that swimming tracker, mm. and it just looks like something that was designed in, like, 1990. There's a lot of ugly stuff, isn't there? It's big a lot of and ugly blue. Stuff. Blue! The Samsung fitness thing looked quite, looked quite cool. It, it did look quite cool. Nice, yeah. big, colourful screen. Which doesn't work, or you know, whatever that article review was saying. I don't know. Look- I just, I think what I actually want is like an old-fashioned, really simple, clear watch that I don't have to change the battery every week. You know, every three years is fine. Wouldn't it be funny if the iWatch turned out not to be a wristwatch at all? Imagine if it was a pocket watch. Like one of those old-fashioned clamshell pocket watches with like, ah, oh, that'd be beautiful. This is because you're, you know, you're a nurse and you can't have anything on your, below the end of the elbows? Is <laughs> this mean... for first responders? No, you don't clip it onto your pocket. You have it on a chain. Alex has the... one. Alex has a pocket watch. He has a pocket watch? Does it go yeah. in his, uh, lapel, in his uh, front pocket on his shirt? In his, uh, no, and normally you would put it in your waistcoat pocket. And you look at it with your monocoat. And you would. <laughs> That's what they should do. Yeah. That's what everybody would buy. I want a special Google Glass monocle. That's what I want. That's called a Google Class. <laughs> oh, I should get up this oh, early. Oh, that's day. painful. Right, we should do a sponsor. Let me do our first sponsor of the week, which is Shopify. So I don't know whether you know, but one of the reasons why Stephanos became well-known was because, well, sort of well-known. Well, well known enough to be shortlisted for the net awards. Stuff and what? See how I slipped that in. No sense. <laughs> Stiffy no sense. Stiffy no sense. Back in the day, anyway, we designed and we developed an e-commerce site for Disney Store UK. It was 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And it was the first large-scale e-commerce site that used CSS for layout, and it got very widely talked about. Even Jeffrey Zeldman wrote about it in his second edition of Designing with Web Standards, which was really cool. God, imagine how I felt when I opened that book. (gasps) Anyway, we worked on a lot of e-commerce projects back then, and we even developed our own standards-based e-commerce platform. But to be honest, I never enjoyed e-commerce work as much as I enjoyed other projects. So when I sold that platform business, I just vowed to myself that I'd never go work on another e-commerce site. 
And I really stuck to that until Shopify tempted me back. Shopify is the e-commerce platform that many people I know and respect all use. People like Eight Faces, Elliot and Kia, mm-hmm. A Book Apart, uh, Hardgraft, who make my favorite cases and sleeves, uh, Macs and iPods and phones and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, United Pixel Workers, and Five Simple Steps used it too. You know, you look at those sites and you'd never guess that they were all built using Shopify. Shopify is more than an e-commerce platform. They've got a partner program that helps you make more from your business making e-commerce websites. That's your gateway to building sites for clients with Shopify. So when you join their free partner program, you'll get access to their learning resources, documentation, video tutorials, they even run workshops. I want them to run a workshop up, up, up my way, Manchester way. That'd be really cool. You can learn while making any number of fully featured and non-time limited development shops that are available to you via your partner dashboard. And then you can also create custom Shopify themes for a client, or you can build your own theme from scratch and sell it in the Shopify theme store. Plus through the partner program, you learn 20% revenue, revenue share for every store that you bring to Shopify. So Shopify is the e-commerce platform that I now recommend to all my clients and you should join their partner program too. It's free and you go to unfinished.bz slash Shopify to let them know that you heard about them here on Unfinished Business. Good sponsor, Reed. There's been some thoughtful articles published this week. I don't know whether you've kept up with things. Did you see Kenneth Bowles yesterday? He works at Twitter, by the way, Kenneth Bowles. Mm-hmm. He writes a column for a list apart. And he wrote about his letter to a junior designer. Did you see this? No, I didn't. I'm just looking it up right now. You link me to this. He always writes some really thoughtful things, does Kenneth. Can you please say uh, Kenneth's first name uh, one more time? Kenneth. Because that's not what I'm reading here. No, but it's spelt the Welsh way. So in Welsh, the double D at the end is a th sound. Oh, my God. I don't know anything about Welsh. And the Y is a sort of I sound, you know, E. So, yeah, it's basically Kenneth. Ah, in my head, every time I think I'd been called, I'd been pronouncing every letter. Kenneth. No, I liked what, I liked what he said. Mm. I disagree with some of the other things that he said. So the points that he's making are, if you haven't read it, slow down, think it through, temper your passion. Oh, that's it. Those are the headlines of it. Those are the, those are the main points. If I could go back two years and say those three things to myself or five years or 10 years. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's good advice for everybody. I really like what he said about being able to justify design decisions. I thought that was very good. The thing that I always sort of, I don't know whether disagree is the right word. Mm. I kind of rankles me a little bit with product designers. Um, or with other people that, you know, it's all about the data, all about the research is, you know, to me, it's not just about knowing, you know, justifying a design decision isn't just about knowing something. It's not like, well, I've been away and I found out that this works or it doesn't. It's just, you know, it's as much about selling, you know, it's selling the why. Right. This is the why, you know, what he mentions in the article, you know, why is a border that width? You need to know, you need to know why a border is that width. Well, of yeah. course you need to do. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that you necessarily have to kind of go out and test it. Because he says, you know, it looks oh, right. It looks right is is not a good enough answer. It's as important to be able to sell the reason why. And that reason why could be something that you just made up. Because <laughs> I make stuff up all the time. I, I, I like, I like this. I, I think that the, what you have to really remember is you have to be responsible for whatever it is you do, right? You have, and responsible really just means you have to be able to respond about it when someone asks you, like, why is this, this color? You know, yeah. I call it res- responsible design. Because if somebody <laughs> comes along to you and they says, well, I'm not really sure about this, you know, why have you chosen that color? Yeah, you've got to have a reason, right? You can't you, just you've say, got oh, to have a reason. No, you've clue. got to have a reason. And some people would say, well, it's because 20 out of 30 people really prefer blue. It's like, mm. no, that's not the kind of thing, to, you know, because I, I, I go on a hunch, you know, that, that I might have a system, I might have something in my head that's told me why it's that color, why I've chosen that blue. Yeah. So you've got to be able to explain it because there's nothing worse than just going, oh, I don't really know. Oh, yeah, we just thought it looked good. Because then if you say that, then, then somebody else can just come along and go, well, I don't think it does look good. Let's change it to orange. Right. You don't want to be subjective about it. You want exactly. to. Exactly. No one can question uh, an objective 
statement that you make, whereas if it's subjective, they can. You know, I think that's a shame. It it sort of implies that it, uh, that your taste has nothing to do with it, and what you like about the design kind of is irrelevant as long as everything can stick to a set of principles that the next designer can can pick up and run with. Maybe that's you know, maybe that's what it is. They're maybe sort that's of asking what it is. you to document your work. I just realised, and I've been, I've been struggling with this for quite a while because there has been this. There's been a lot of enthusiasm over the last couple of years for much more systematic design, I'll call it. You know, some of it I like the idea of, and, and, and a lot of it doesn't sit well with me. And then I realized, it was only after reading this letter yesterday, that I realized that Kenneth and I, we come from totally, I think we come from different perspectives on it. Because he's a product designer, in inverted commas, right? You know, he d- designs digital products. Yeah. And I suppose that's why he likes, you know, UX so much, whatever that is. I, I don't do that though. I, I don't design digital products. I make websites to communicate, you know, I communicate people's messages. That's what I do. I tweeted yesterday, you know, I don't design power drills. I help people that are selling power drills tell other people who are buying power drills that they need to buy the power drill that they're selling. That's what I do. Sure. So, and I think that's the difference. I think that that's the difference. And what he said in the letter, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Zeldman a couple of weeks ago. Did you listen to that show? I didn't. I missed it. Oh, it's a good one. But in this letter, Kenneth said, perhaps your teachers exalted, exalted the idea in inverted commas as the gem of the creative work. And they taught you that ideas are the hard part. And he said, I dis- oh. he said, I disagree. Ideas aren't to be trusted. They need to be wrung dry, ripped apart. We have the rare luxury that our professional diligence often equates to playfulness to do our job properly. We must disassemble our promising ideas and make them into something better. That's what Kenneth wrote, right? Mm. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong because I know that it's a good idea to make you know, marketing and advertising messages better as well. That seems this is important. And I don't think that ideas ever come out, you know, they don't burst into the world as good as they can ever be. But I've realized that maybe Kenneth and people that do what he does, they love the process of ripping something apart, of disassembling it. They love that more than the actual idea itself. And that's where we disagree, right? Because, I see. because ripping apart and testing and research and, you know, all of those things, I think they're all important, but if you don't have the idea, you've got nothing. Hmm. And that's what they're about. They're about this process of ripping apart and refining and iterating and not about the idea. And that's what I'm about. I'm about the idea. Is this is a very? Uh, have you read the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Do you know what? Never did. Yeah, this is almost um, exactly what I got from that book, uh, and what that book sort of uh, is 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 about. Um, and it's quite a it's quite a long and in some parts very complicated read, but there are bits you can sort of just rush through. I I found because uh, a lot of it is quite ex- existential and philosophical. But in one part of it, there there's two people riding motorbikes. In, in the story, there's, uh, the narrator with his son and, and their friends, uh, and, and the friend has, a, a beautiful new BMW motorcycle and the narrator has an old, you know, trusty bike. And the difference is that the narrator sort of knows how to, 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 to take his ba- bike apart and change all the pieces and, and he knows what it's doing basically. He understands the machine. Whereas the friend, uh, really just enjoys the, the, the pleasure of the ride, you know, the idea of being on a motorbike, the whole kind of concept of the motorbike in general. So when the, when the bike breaks down, his whole idea is, you know, of course, <laughs> kind of flattened by this beautiful bike, just it suddenly doesn't work and someone's got to come and fix it. But the, uh, the, the difference is one, one knows how to deconstruct the motorcycle into its, you know, various, various pieces and bits and, and sort of sections where some pieces do a different part of the whole system. You know, the air, the air bits, the electricals, the, the pistons and everything. And the other one just thinks of the bike as a whole. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's sort of similar to what you're saying here, where you like the, the idea, the concept, the, the, the schema for what it is you're doing. But, uh, Kenneth likes to sort of split it apart and see how it works and see why 
why it's a good idea and kind of, I guess, you know, quantify it. I mean, maybe it's because I came from a time before the web or something. I don't know. I'm sure Kenneth did too. He's not quite as old as I am. I don't understand the concept. <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested in, in the message, you know, in communicating something, mm. in persuading somebody. That's what I love to do. To me, it's always been about sales. It just made me think that there's a huge difference between doing what I do every day, you know, when I suppose what a lot of other people do, which is, you know, I make websites for clients to communicate with their customers. That's what I do. Mm. And I tried to do that in such a way, you know, even I've been working this week with a, with a lovely technical development shop, team of developers mm -hmm. um, in the UK, and I've been redesigning their site for them. And yes, you know, some of it is about looking at what their statistics are. You know, I wanted to know um, what their stats were because I wanted to know how much effort to put into small screens. Yeah, yeah. They only had a limited time available, limited budget available, and I wanted to know um, how much effort I should spend on a certain bit. Where should I put the weight of my work, right? So, you know, I'm not saying that we ignore statistics and just do what some kind of egotistical designer wants to do, because that's not what I'm talking about. Most of what I was thinking throughout the week, and I was thinking about typography, and I was thinking about layout, and I was thinking about, you know, other design elements, mm -hmm. visual design elements. But I was also thinking about, right, how are they selling to their clients? You know, what, how are they communicating this idea? And I think that's really different from making a product. And I think that what I do is a lot different from making a product that people then use. You know, people that work at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or yeah. Dropbox or somewhere like that. A product that somebody uses every day. Mm. There's a lot of similarity in terms of the skills but there's a different emphasis and I, and I worry, I worry that all this talk about UX or designing with data in inverted commas, this bandwagon that everybody seems to be jumping on is great when you design a product, but we need to be still teaching people about having great ideas and knowing how to communicate them. And that's what's missing. I think. I think it still can be harmful when you're designing a product. To clarify, I, I don't know whether I see a difference between what you do and, and, and designing an application in that both are putting pixels on a screen to communicate messages. It's just that applications are sometimes two way or, you know, the user sort of gets to do a little bit more with an application than they would with a site. And I think it does just come down to complexity. There are websites that are as complicated as apps and there are apps that are so, so simplified and so simple in their, in their needs that they can be run in a web browser. But I like to <clears throat> sort of look at, look at the, you know, the end result, which is literally, you know, there's pixels lighting up on a screen that I, that I look at to the exclusion of everything else. And as a result, you know, you can, you could kind of lump the, the lot together and, and speak to all of them when, when you say that I think, uh, you can go too far with, you know, design by, design by data. You can lose touch with what it was you were trying to make if you follow your numbers. Um, cause the numbers can be totally misleading, of course. You can, you can get, you know, numbers that go up for a certain thing that can be a, a, a non-goal. And I don't know who said it, but a non-goal I've always thought of as a logical conclusion that you intend to avoid. Mm. So you, you can, your numbers, your numbers can lead you down a path that kind of works against what you actually were trying to do with the product, or they can basically sidetrack you from making what it is that you wanted. The data always has a part to play in this. Like, like you say, when you're looking at the user statistics, that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're, you are designing by data. You're using that to, to help with your work, but they don't, you know, only light. For me, it's just, a, it's, it just informs me, you know, about, it, it gives me an answer to a certain question. It isn't what's driving the creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I think Facebook, uh, came under, under fire recently because they launched, they launched a version of their profile page that, uh, it was totally different. It was, you know, photos everywhere and it looked lovely. I thought it looked really nice. And some designer had obviously gone to a lot of work to make something that just was gorgeous. And then I think they probably prototyped it out, gave it to, <laughs> you know, probably a quarter of a million users or something and, and got them to try it. And the numbers didn't match up. The numbers went down for stuff. And so they, they couldn't really ship that because it would hurt the number of interactions people do with the site. And the number of interactions that people do with the site is there. That's their bread and butter. That's the KPI. My favorite, my total, absolute favorite one of these was, is somebody launched uh, uh, an, uh, what was it? 
somebody launched an Ajax-based redesign. This was a, a while ago. And it meant that every um, page view, rather than you know loading it the, the entire page from the server, sort of like what we do with Forge, but this was uh, this was sort of on a bigger scale. Well, a bigger site is a journalist site. And <laughs> the page views dropped off, and they rolled it all back, and they undid everything they did. And I've always wondered whether their page views dropped off because they were only counting that initial page load. <laughs> they weren't counting any of the... You know, I wonder whether oh, that the data d- yeah. totally misled, misled them into dropping something that would have been quite nice. You don't, you just never know. And it's, I think you've got to, it's just a line you've got to tread. And you could go too far in either direction for any project, but you've still got to sort of be in that nice path of, I, you know, liking what you're doing and yet also knowing that what you're doing is, is right for the, the fit. And your numbers can, your numbers can be wrong. I'm just thinking about this redesign that I've been working on. It's been the last couple of weeks I've been working on this. And their website at the moment is your typical development. And they're very good at what they do. Mm. You know, they, they are they're one of the leaders in this particular technology that they work with. Mm-hmm. And their website at the moment is just what you would imagine from a developer's website. You know, it's incredibly boring. In, in its, I wouldn't say it's boring in terms of its, its look necessarily, but it's very, uh, pedestrian. Yeah. And very conventional. And, you know, there's a grid on the homepage of, you know, the screenshots of his three projects. Sure. And everything that they talk about is all about we, you know, it's we do this, oh, we yeah. do that, and we do the other thing, and we're really good. We, so yeah. they've actually got quite a lot of content because they work with some great clients. Mm-hmm. So what we decided to do, we had the idea that we should turn the whole thing around and we should not talk about them at all. But, and it's a, it's an old idea. We should let their work do the talking for them and let their clients speak on their behalf. And I'm not just talking about some kind of lame testimonials, you know, we worked with stuff for nonsense and it was a lovely experience. <laughs> Mr. Andy's A approach from, to design. <laughs> Mr. A from Ramsgate, <laughs> you know, none of that. We designed the whole thing to be based around, uh, these stories. And ah, stories is a tame thing, but you know, we all the client experiences. Yeah. So gone are all the sections that, you know, the site doesn't say design, development, hosting, service or anymore. You know, all of that's gone and people will move around the site by actually reading and listening to in audio and video what people that used them actually experienced and what they made mm. that's that's like, now thinking about I mean, it's not you know it's not a new idea but it's i think it's going to work for them first of all all of that is a hunch we sure. have no data to back up this design decision it's a concept we think it's a good idea we want to do it because it's completely different from all of the other uh drupal development companies <laughs> that are out there so it's a hunch and I think that that's okay. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, where does this all fit in? You know, we've re- we've reorganized all of the content to put it into these new, yeah. this new framework. Yeah. Do we call that information architecture? I don't uh, know whether we do. I don't think so. No, exactly. So where does that come in? Do, do we think about people's moving around mm-hmm. the site through these stories? Is that UX? UX is a, is a product of what you're trying to achieve here. So I, I think, I still think that there's a difference between doing what we're doing and thinking about the, how would they're communicating their message to their clients and building a product. And I know that some people are going to go, yes, Andrew, but what you could do is you could measure whether or not their inquiries through their contact form go up or down. People just jump to measure anything they can and assume that that's the most relevant statistic. And I don't know that it is. You could get a thousand replies and all of them could be garbage. You know, you could get the wrong people emailing. What you really got to measure is whether or not you are satisfied with it. You know, whether or not the client is satisfied with it and the, and the responses they get are right. And that's hard. It's way harder to measure. Maybe the problem is that just they're measuring what they can and it's not the right thing. I think people just want to keep, you know, they want to measure. They want to know that they want to be, have their hunches reinforced, I suppose, because that matters that they may be doing the right thing. Well, maybe that doesn't matter whether you do it. It's the a right very thing. developer maybe, mindset. Maybe it's okay to do the wrong thing. Yeah. When, for the right reasons. If you're, if you're a Drupal developer or, you know, a programmer like, like, like us, you know, all of your work is verifiable and you can tell that you're getting better because your numbers go up. And that's, it's just reassuring. 
it's reassuring to know that everything you do, you can tell whether you're on the right track. And design kind of is more subtle with that. You, you can, you can design something, think it's great, put it out in the wild and not know for six months that it just wasn't the right approach for the people that you're thinking. And most, mostly because you actually have to talk to the kind of person who would be a customer of this shop, I would say. If you were going to go and user test this, the numbers of how many people email through might be useful. They might not. Um, but actually going to sort of an ideal customer of this company and saying, hey, look, what do you think about this? And that's probably what you would do if you ever needed anything Drupal done. You'd bring up the site and say, what do you think about these guys to your prospective client who needed some Drupal done and say, what do you, what do you think about these guys? And then that's sort of the, that's sort of the measurement that you want, showing someone who might hire these people and seeing sort of what they say or the idea that they get from, from that approach. Because that, that, that's the sort of thing that you can't measure. That strategy is, is harder to measure in terms of its effect on your, your desired customers, right? You can change your customer base by doing that wrong. You can get you, if you if you change your design and it's it's sort of marketing itself to you know lower value product, lower value contracts or clients that you don't want for one reason or another. You can change your user base, get more contact information, get more people emailing you, and get fewer projects out of it and get less work. Hold that thought. I'm holding because I want to do the sponsor. But hold that thought. Okay. Don't go away. Okay. Listeners would notice if I talked about a product that I didn't use or that wasn't a good fit for the show. Mm-hmm. And that's why I only generally talk about products that I use and I really like. And that's why I'm always pleased to talk about Matt Grabbit's Espresso. Yeah. And I'm so pleased that they sponsor the show. <laughs> Espresso is the editor that I've used to write code every day for about as long as I can remember. And I've used it so much, so often that I can't honestly imagine using anything else to write my HTML and my CSS. Espresso's got all the tools that I need to make writing and editing code simple and efficient. Now, I write a lot of CSS, as you might imagine, and Espresso's got MacRabbit's award-winning CSS edit tools built right in. It's got CodeSense, code folding, smart snippets, and a drag-and-drop navigator. All of that will help you write better code in much less time. Now, I find myself using Espresso's project-wide search and replace quite a lot, especially when I'm moving from design to production. Quick filtering and color highlighting, they also make searching for the contents of file really easy too. Everybody's workflow is slightly different, and Espresso includes a flexible workspace that's going to fit into yours. When you're ready to see how your work will look in a browser, Espresso includes a fantastic web preview, which has X-Ray, so you can see how the HTML and the CSS you're writing affects the pages that you're building. It also visualizes margin and padding, and it helps you quickly find and edit the relevant style for any element. And then when you're ready, just sync and publish your work to a web server using Espresso's built-in tools. You know, I've tried other editors. You know, you mentioned Sublime Text earlier yeah. on, Sublime Text 2. Mm-hmm. I, I downloaded that. Everybody been banging on about it. I downloaded it, installed it, spent five minutes trying <laughs> to figure out how to actually start using it, how to start a project, couldn't find out how to create a new file, deleted it, and went back to Espresso. It's a bit of a programmer tool. You know, I, can't, I just can't imagine using anything else. So Espresso is available from unfinished.bz slash espresso and it's only $75 but listeners to the show you can get a fantastic 10% discount by using the coupon code unfinished at the checkout and that's espresso nice what did I tell you to hold the thought uh you forgot already <laughs> um oh I know what it was yeah I know apes obviously oh it was apes yes it was apes and because I was really worried we launched the apes in November Yep. Mid-November. Oh, right. yes, that's right. That's right. Round about my birthday time. I'm going to go and, and look right now. And I was saying on the show, even sort of up until maybe the end of January, how I was a bit worried that maybe we'd gone too far this time. <laughs> maybe they were a little bit aggressive. I don't know. But maybe we were putting people off. Maybe it was the wrong choice because our mm. contacts and through the web contact form, they'd gone down. Um, and throughout that kind of, I don't know, month and a half, six week period ish, mm-hmm. we got very, very little inquiries. I mean, I even had to keep testing the contact form, make sure it worked because very little was coming through. Yeah. Luckily, I think I was wrong because since then we've had a steady stream of people and a steady stream of work. And we haven't had, we haven't had a week this year where we haven't been doing something mm. and something paid for usually, which is really nice. It's good. 
So if I'd have counted the number of contacts, I would have been thinking, damn, no, change the apes, change the apes. Yeah. Put the friendly guy back on, right? Yeah. But actually, what happened was, since we've been getting more and more inquiries through again, those inquiries have been good ones. Yeah. They haven't been inappropriate inquiries. You know, they haven't been either people that don't have the budget that we need. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff that we've done this year, I've written a bit of HTML and a bit of CSS for everything, but we haven't actually made many websites this year so far. Everything that we've been doing has been design. I mean, we've been working on a, a project with SAP this week. Sue's been working on it. Pure mm. design. Mm. I was down in Plymouth working on a, a web appy design. Yeah. All design, no code. We spent so much more time this year doing the stuff that we really want to do and not getting stressed out about, you know, installing bloody databases. So actually, it was right. It it did it. it the, the apes are the right thing, and our business has improved because of them. I think. Yeah. Because they've been such a filter. I wouldn't know that if I'd have just gone on the numbers. Yeah, it's easy. It's easy to go with the wrong metric. It's easy to uh, you know look look at what you think is your best metric and see it going down and, and panic. And I think that is a panic. You just have to give it time. Everything takes time. Maybe what you really need to do is put it up for a whole year, measure it a year each, a year each, because that's, you know, maybe three months isn't long enough for, you know, you need to average things out. So put each one up for a year and see which year you were, you know, you were happiest with the people that contacted you through, through the form. Because I, I would, you know, I would say that the number of people emailing you about new work is the metric that you think you're looking at. You, you know, you think that's your metric, but, it, but it's, it's, but it's totally not. We found this with Hammer actually, to, to, to shamelessly plug something. We had people who were asking for other features, asking for n- new stuff constantly. It would be great if Hammond did this. And we have to go back and say, like, it's not, it doesn't, it's not like that. It doesn't work that way. We're not adding this feature that you've asked for. I can see why it'd be good, but these are the reasons it won't be. And you sort of, you sort of think to yourself as you're writing this, I am losing a customer. This is how, <laughs> this is how you lose a customer is you write them back and you tell them that you're not going to do any of the things that they're asking you to. It doesn't do that. The, the ones that go away were sort of never really going to be your customers anyway. But the ones that stay are better customers for it. And maybe it's the, maybe it's the same thing with design, where by showing your opinion about something, by showing your point of view and, and how you like to design and things that you like, like apes, by showing a bit of yourself, perhaps you get clients who are who are who that, that resonates with them. You know, that means something to them. I think so. I mean, that's, that's, I don't want to make it all about, you know, stuff, but I think that that's how we've always tried to do things. And, you know, the website's been both a shop front and a filter and, you know, an expression of what we would like to do and the things that we like to work on. Mm. And, and I think that when you do the things that you like to work on, you do your best work. Yeah. That's not to say that it always has to be easy. Doing this project down in, in Plymouth with this, uh, with this app was actually really challenging because I knew nothing about what they did. Mm. And this is what kind of bugs me sometimes about, you know, oh, well, designers need to have empathy and Jesus Christ. That, <laughs> I think even Kenneth mentioned the empathy word. It's like the next person that mentions empathy, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> I think it's the opposite of empathy. That's how much empathy I have, right? <laughs> right. I'd like to, every time somebody use the word empathy now, I'd like, I'd like you to just in your head, just switch that with punch in the face. <laughs> you might have semantic uh, satiation there with this word. Yeah, I mean, I know now, having spent two weeks working on it, what the scientists that use this application want to achieve. Yeah. I know what goals they have. I know that they don't want to be frustrated, you know, to find something because who wants to be frustrated? What you're talking about is empathy. I don't want, no, but it's not though. I don't need empathy, empathy, some liberal bullshit. (laughs) I don't need that. So you just don't like the word. It's not, it just drives me nuts. You've got negative connotations with the word. As if I have to kind of somehow, I'm you know, really. I'm trying to be empathetic about this. Really appreciate how you feel. I'm just going to be quiet now and listen. I'm oh, for f**k's sake. <laughs> well, I'm being very quiet here and listening to your problems <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out a solution. That's my rant about empathy. Maybe, that's my rant maybe, about empathy. <laughs> I think people just jumped on the word and were using it a lot without super knowing quite what it meant they were probably trying to trying to use it to say get into the get into the user's head rather than 
figure out what problems this user has. Yeah, get into the user's <laughs> head so that they know what somebody's trying to achieve so you can figure out a better solution for how to make it happen. I understand that, right? Did you just it's read not that from the empathy. No, I didn't. I just made that up. I don't need to know, man, you know, Dorothy is really frustrated. But, you know, really, oh, no, just, no. I don't care whether she's having a good day or a bad that's day. that's sympathy. That's sympathy. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, the thing. you're conflating the two. You can be, you can just not care about these people. But this is what people do. Empathy, empathy. You know, I don't care. I don't care. You don't, I don't have care to care you... to be empathetic. You just I don't have to care understand. Had... You just have to understand. If you care, you're being sympathetic because you're feeling the same way. But empathy, I think, and I'm going to go look this up afterwards and it'll be wrong, but empathy is, is actually knowing what they're going through and sympathy is going, going through it with them and, 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 and kind of helping them with it. Yeah, well, I think that other people conflate the two because I couldn't give two f- what normal what people are feeling when they use it. I just want them to get through it. Yeah, well, true. Maybe anyway, they do too. We shall get letters. They want to get through it too. We shall get letters about this. Oh, so to talk about this kind of uh, I don't know what however we conflate it now, but mm. normally speaking here at stuff we get somebody on the phone hopefully or somebody through an email and actually that's another thing about the contact form we get a lot of people phoning us up we get a lot of people phoning up going can i talk to you about making a website Mm -hmm. which that's unusual i think i don't whether you know often people complain about that yeah that that is unusual people complain about get about the phone ringing i get i complain about the phone ringing when it's somebody trying to sell me over 50s insurance we email we we get emails asking for a phone number that they can contact us on I think people still love to talk. We don't reply because those generally aren't the kind of, you know, kind of, kind of projects that we want. That's why we don't put a, a phone number on our, on our thing. But I know that if this happens, we have, we have a e-commerce, um, friend, friend company that is around the corner. And, uh, yeah, they just get, they get Americans calling them up at all times of the day and night. <laughs> they don't do the time zone. We make projects for people. They get on the phone, they drop us an email, they have a specific time, mm-hmm. and that by the same token means a specific budget for making a website. Sure. And they want to either do what this development company does, which is to uh, advertise themselves better, mm-hmm. to present themselves better, more professionally, more contemporary, more distinctive from their competitors. That's what we figured out for them. Sometimes people want to sell things. So, you know, it's it's using a tool like Shopify to, you know, make something that functionally allows you to sell an item, right? We, you know, we'll do that as well. Yeah. And then, generally speaking, when the things finished and it goes live and it's been paid for there is very little other work that we do with the client i mean sometimes they'll come back and they want things changed sometimes we have an an arrangement with people where we might do uh, a sixth monthly review Mm -hmm. or sometimes even an annual review where you know we'll talk to people going forward but there's very little prospect for iteration in a lot of client services work yeah you know i would say that 90% 90% of the people that we work with, when they come to us, they don't have data to design with, right? They don't have it. They don't know why they need it. Most importantly of all, they can't afford somebody to go and get it for them. So <laughs> all of this talk about, you know, you can't do anything without research, that, that it goes completely over the head of, I would say, most clients and a hell of a lot of web designers. Yeah. So... What they do is they rely on our experience and our good taste and our understanding and our ability to figure out a solution to a problem, like, you know, like this um, thing down in Plymouth. And your established techniques that you've been practicing over the last, I don't yeah. know how many years. This is where, uh, this is the, the main thing that kind of bugs me with this whole topic, mm. is that because of that, we have an opinion and we kind of know what to do with it and we can convince people and we can sell it. And that's what's important to me. And I think that all this, you know, data driven stuff, it has its place. Yeah. But it doesn't take over from what I do and it can't. Does that make sense or does that sound to sound like I'm a, some arrogant egotistical? No, designer? it sounds right. It's almost like A B testing, right? Where you do two versions of the same thing, both of which you like and you see which one is better. And you see which one is better for the metric of whatever it is that you're trying to do, right? Sell more drills or, or whatever, but you still do that original design. You don't let the data drive. It's like trust but verify. Yes, I think that that's right. You design it and, and you subtly vary it and you see whether it's an improvement. And I do say to clients sometimes when they'll come back and they'll say, no, we must have this big picture of the CEO on the homepage. Mm-hmm. 
And I will, and usually it's the CEO that says that. And, and I will say, is that just a personal opinion or do you have some data to back that up? So I'm, <laughs> I'm being hypocritical here because I do use that. All you're asking him is why. And if he can't give you a proper reason, then it is just. But then it's because I don't want it to be, you know, his opinion against my opinion. Yeah. So I do think that verifying an idea and, and testing it and improving it is important. You just I need wish, a reason from him. Any reason I that makes sense. I wish that we had more time and more, yeah, more time really on yeah. a project to be able to do that. Still at the very beginning, and this is what I don't think people are, maybe people that I speak to, they get so hung up in the ripping apart, as Kenneth described it earlier on, mm. and not enough in the coming up with the idea in the first place. So they take any old idea and, well, and, and it's, rip it's, it up. Well, I think it's like you can Or they can construct take, an idea from the, the you can construct Either you construct an idea from the from the parts. Mm. It's like, well, we've looked at how many people eat cereal and, you know, there we're going to make something based on cereal. We're going to make cornflake cakes. So they come up with the idea of the cornflake cake based on how many, t- how many people eat cereal as opposed to going, me, you can make cakes out of rice krispies. Mm. Cause you can, you know, and they're good. Rice krispie cakes. I haven't had one of those since I was about eight. Are these the ones that don't taste like anything? They taste like kind of chocolate covered rice krispies. What else are they going to taste like? Chocolate covered. Now, see, now we're talking. You're not talking about those round rice krispie cakes that, that you eat if you're doing an hour of swimming every day. And you no, can... they're rice cakes. No, they, they taste like feet. They're just the flavor vehicle. <laughs> That's got to be the show title. You get rice krispies or cornflakes and you melt chocolate and you mix the two things together. Oh, I've had these. Yes. And then oh, you put oh, them yeah. in like a little paper. It's like a little cupcake made of rice krispies. Glued together with chocolate. Exactly. And you make one of those based on the fact that, man, it's a really good idea. Let's, let's, let's do that because that's cool. Yeah. As opposed to, well, 20 people have told us that they want to eat more cereal. Yeah. Look, this is the, this is the uh, motorcycle maintenance thing again, because by, I think from, from, I read it a little while ago, what it comes, what it comes all the way around back to, and I'll spoil the ending of the book probably, but is the idea that you, we have, we have diverged from the concept of doing things because they're good. And we're now trying to do them because they are sort of right. So we try and apply some mathematics to this and see which one is the one and which one is the zero, right? Which one's right and which one's wrong. And we forget to, to figure out what's really, really good and like why we did this in the first place and what, and what we like. And that redeeming quality of what we like is, is why, is why we choose whatever it is that we, that we go with. And it is our, it's totally our, Decision. It's that qu- it's the quality about it that we like the most that we use about it. So rice crispy cakes are good, but and 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 the uh, on the opposite side, figuring out how many of your users like cornflakes and making cakes to to match them is sort of it's totally backwards, right? That's some that's some you know that's some Plato getting it wrong and us following him for the all this all this time. It's crazy. Why would you do it? Well, no one wants to eat those. Whereas a rice crispy cake. I want one now. So yeah, I've decided that I'm going to read sort of, and I know people keep talking about this. Brad Frost wrote a post the other day about stop calling yourself creative. But, you know, sod off. I've got here in my hand, Hegarty on Creativity, the book is called. Mm. There are no rules. And John Hegarty, who I saw on TV a couple of weeks ago, which is the reason for buying this book, he was, he was on TV mm. plugging this particular book. It's all about being creative. And it says on the back here, creativity isn't an occupation, it's a preoccupation. It invents, perfects, and defines our world. It explains and entertains us. And it's a little book here, Thames and Hudson, £7.95. So I'm going to read this and I'm going to write a review because he was awesome on TV. That sounds like a cool book. This is what interests me. I mean, you know, he's an old advertising executive guy, you know? That's mm-hmm. who he is, John Hegarty. I want to listen to what he has to say. John, please, uh, had a very good thing on the creative process. I think it was a video and he was doing a talk on it. It's a very good video. I think you, you need to give yourself a lot of space and time and confidence and humor. I think was what it came down to. I'm reading the, the Cliff's notes. And there was something like you had to stop whatever it was you were doing for half an hour and get, and sort of get yourself into a, almost a creative mindset where it's experimental, sort of playful, where there are no sort of consequences to what you do. Um, artists do this and they call it, you know, um, 
loosening up or, or you know, re- reducing all your inhibitions. They make you do all this weird stuff. If you've ever done a painting class or anything like that, or even a music class, sometimes they do it. They just make you, for about five minutes, they just make you be really weird. Just yeah. act, act really strangely and just kind of lose your sense of self-conscious sort of, uh, image of what, what, that what you're doing is very odd and just sort of, uh, and, and, and just focus on what it is that you were doing. We did this a lot at art school, a lot of kind of, uh, Let's go and play with beach balls. Let's, let's, the one day we had to bring in everything that we could about the beach and then went to the gym, went to the big, the big gymnasium hall mm-hmm. and, uh, and put up tents and played with beach balls all day. And it was the oddest thing. I think that stuff is useful and we've forgotten how useful it is. That, you know, reducing your inhibitions and getting, getting weird and creative and interesting and sort of letting go and, and finding your way through whatever it is you're trying to make. Has sort of been lost to the the data crowd, the lost to the record everything and see if your numbers go up, kind of people. Maybe maybe that's got something to do with it. I, I miss it. You know, I, I think we're all a little bit concerned about being a bit self conscious or not wanting to do anything too str- not wanting to go too far from the from the past because we feel like we might get sidetracked and not get anywhere. But in fact, those creative times when you just think, you know, it, I'll just do whatever I want for now. I come up with my, my best ideas when I'm, it's, when it's got nothing to do with what I actually should be doing. People come up with stuff in the shower. You know, they, they come up with stuff driving or sleeping. The subconscious mind is, is, uh, is, there's a lot of document, uh, documented history on people sleeping to come up with the right, sleeping on it, basically. I can't remember who it was, uh, but he would fall asleep in his chair with a, a handful of coins and dangle his hand over a brass plate whenever he was thinking of it. I think it was Edison or something, whenever he was figuring out light bulbs or whatever. And he would drift off to sleep, and as he fell asleep, he'd drop all these coins on the plate and wake up with it with a start, and he'd have the answer, because he sort of just drifted off and let his mind wander. I think it's true. I think it's true. I think any time you sit down to do any design, maybe... Maybe we should try this for a week. Maybe we should... Any time you sit down to do some any, you know, proper creative work, just stand up and... And just, you know, just shake around or do something totally and utterly absurd that everybody would laugh at you if they saw you. Generally, I would do this away from everybody. But kind of, you know, forget that it's not all about, it's not all about what you come out with. It's about the process, about figuring out what you like about what it is that you're making. And I'm hoping that the swimming, to bring it full circle, is going to help me do some of that stuff, you know, just like mm, kind of open my mind and, 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 and allow me just to kind of, you know, so I won't have to concentrate on the breathing. <laughs> I, think, I think you do have to concentrate on the breathing because my theory is that all meditation and all, they call it spirituality, comes from consciously regulating your breathing. Interesting. This is my unifying theory of everything, and I'm pleased we came around to it. Swimming is especially pertinent because when you consciously change the way that you're breathing you change or the way that your your brain's rhythms work quite substantially actually you can measure it and it it puts you into a different frame of mind you know this you take 10 deep breaths and you feel a bit calmer you do it for an hour and it puts you on a different puts you kind of in a different place well you know and when they teach you to meditate they one of the tricks is just to listen to your breathing in and out in and out you do it for an hour and it's pretty hard to be the same as when you went in and it's quite scientific. If you think about any religion or uh, philosophy or, or, well, generally religion, I would say, they all have some sort of singing or dancing or praying or uh, meditating or chanting is a good one. And all of them kind of revolve around doing this. I haven't yet found one that doesn't. And it's pretty, um, I don't know, it, it feels pretty, pretty, pretty convincing that, that, you know, regulating your breathing the way swimming does. And maybe backstroke isn't the best answer because you can, I can you breathe can at any point. Maybe you've got to try. I, I was actually working on a little bit of technique this week as well. I mean, I tried to get my time down, mm-hmm. but I also wanted to improve my turning technique. Sure. Uh, and I can't do a back tumble turn. Can't do that. So I'm oh, still. Yeah, I can't. I don't think I could do that. Um, so I've bought a nose clip along with my speedos. <laughs> To Can maybe, you post a selfie with your nose clip on? May, I will do that, yes. To maybe help me do the turn a bit better. But also, I was actually trying to improve technique, both in terms of how, you know, the arm enters the water. Sure, yeah. You've got to get into a, like a wind tunnel. That makes a difference. But Static actually pool. breathing as well. And breathing high speed camera. Not, not in and out on every stroke, because I think that's too fast. I think you get tired when you breathe that quickly. 
So actually breathing in and then doing two strokes and then breathing out. So it's, it's you know, one every More four. More efficient I think. use of the oxygen. Hey, uh, if you want a real, if you want a real trip, you should look up the aquatic ape theory. Have you heard of this? No. You'll love this. It's a theory about the missing link in evolution, and it's to do with aquatic apes. Um, the theory holds that. Googling it now. Yeah, you'll you'll. There's a, there's a great video by um by a woman sitting on a chair at a TED conference, and it's totally just it's a great introduction to the whole thing. And the summary is that uh, we evolved from our ancestors from from you know uh, from apes through our need to exist in uh, wet, uh, water-filled land. The, uh, we, that's how we lost our, our, our hair, and that's why we walk on two legs. Interestingly enough, the only time, one of the, one of the times when apes and uh, will, will walk on two legs is when they're wading through water. If you ever see, I, th- I think there's some videos in that talk about, about these little monkeys walking through water, and they, they, they do, they stand up on their back legs, they kind of sort of wade through it like humans would wade through a, a puddle. And so the, the theory held that we lost all our, our fur because it, it didn't really make any sense in the water. Uh, our fingers got kind of, you know, kind of webbed because it helped with the swimming. Uh, we walk on two legs and, but the most interesting one was the, was the breathing. They found that when they, when they teach language to apes, they can't vocalize. And I always thought that was because they don't have the brain power for it. Apparently they do. The reason they can't vocalize is they can't control their breathing well enough to produce sounds when they want to. They can't consciously use their breathing or use the diaphragm to, to make a sound. So wow. they sort of grunt and things. And so by swimming underwater and having to hold our breath, the the aquatic ape theory uh, posits that maybe the ability to hold our breath and the ability to consciously breathe in and out uh, allowed us to use these sounds that we were making to communicate with each other. I never knew that. It's the coolest theory that I'd never heard of before I watched it on the I'll put a link in the show notes. We should wrap it up. What percentage of our bullet points have we covered? About 40%. Ah, see, that's (laughs) higher than last week's last (laughs) last recording where we had 37%. So obviously we're doing something right. You see, you're measuring the metrics and I'm just making it up as I go along. I enjoyed this one about 3% more than I enjoyed the last one. So You may gain 5% more followers. I could. That's at... Elliot Kim to LTT. Or you could follow me at Malarkey. To ask questions or suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. You can support our show 110% by supporting them.